This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. My co-host Rose Fox will return next week. But on today's show, author Tim Dorsey discusses his new crime novel, Coconut Cowboy. Then, PW editorial director Jim Milliot tells us all about the Winter Institute. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And a shout out to Laura Miller, our friend at Slate. So on the nonfiction list, we're continuing with some of the uh, spiritual and financial self-help that we've been seeing since the beginning of the year that happens around New Year's. And we've got a new number one. And this one is a Gordon Ramsay uh, protege. This is uh, Chris Hogan, Retire Inspired. It's not an age. It's a financial number. We don't have a review of this, but when you hear the word retirement, you probably don't imagine yourself scrambling to pay your bills in your golden age. This is a book that's going to, uh, to appeal to a lot of those retiring. And here's another book, uh, or at least thinking about it, Jane Bryant Quinn, uh, How to Make Your Money Last, The Indispensable Retirement Guide. She's the financial writer. She she wrote uh, Making the Most of Your Money Now. This one is at number 47. Uh, she's written on this a lot, and uh, this is her most recent book. Uh, we also have a Why I Write for her on our uh, from her on our website. And then down the line, we have at number three, we have The Name of God is Mercy by Pope Francis. Um, and that's at number three. And then we have Paul Kellen Folly, uh, When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, author and physician Kalanithi had nearly completed his residency in neurosurgery at Stanford when he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, age of 36. And this is about his life and his career, his, his, you know, as he, his dual role as a physician and a patient. And uh, we've had a couple books on recently from doctors who talked about their own uh, struggle through cancer. Uh, and uh, this is this is another one. And finally, one of my favorites is at number 29, My Life on the Road by Gloria Steinem. In our review, we quote, if you want people to listen to you, uh, quoting uh, Steinem right there, you have to listen to them. We say Steinem strives to create positive, meaningful change. Her inviting prose is easy and enjoyable to read, even when the subject matter veers toward the painful. And we gave it a starred review. Over in... Fiction. We have Elizabeth Strout. My name is Lucy Barton. Uh, we say in the review, despite its slim leg, the Strout's tender and moving novel should be read slowly to savor the depths beneath what at first seems a simple story of a mother-daughter reconciliation. And that's at number one on the list. I think it's pretty wonderful. Something about books and something this review said is to read slowly. So much is made uh, or, or touted about fast-paced books. Uh, and there's something to be said for a novel that just does, that goes along more or less at the pace of life. Um, and it, it's something that you can take your time with. 
Number two, uh, Scandalous Behavior by Stuart Woods. Uh, this is his uh, uh, 36 Stone Barrington's novel. Uh, the peripatetic millionaire travels to England where Dame Felicity Devonshire, the director of uh, M16, gives him a tour of Windward Hall. His many fans have come to expect, we say in a review, Stone remains unflappable throughout. And finally, at number six, The Bitter Season by Tammy Hogue. We say Hogue's riveting fifth novel featuring Minneapolis detectives Nikki Liska and Sam Kovacs finds uh, Nikki transferred to the newly funded Cold Case Unit, where she hopes more regular hours will allow her to spend additional time with adolescent sons. Hogue has a gift for creating dynamic suspense, three-dimensional characters, and sharp dialogue, we say. The, the other one I want to talk about is Robert Harris's Dictator. This is at number 21. And this is the closing volume of uh, his Ancient Rome trilogy, which follows Imperium and Conspirata. It's a skillful as it is sobering. Um, And that's what we have on our bestseller list. Uh, I'm Mark Rotella. And next up, we have Tim Dorsey, who will tell us about his new mystery, Coconut Cowboy. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Gaston Doran. I'm the author of Lingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages. And I'm very happy to be on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Tim Dorsey on the line. His new novel is Coconut Cowboy. Hello, Tim. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So in our starred review of your book, we say uh, uh, it's entertainingly picaresque. 19th Surge Storm opens with a scene that sets the comic tone for what's to follow. So, so this is, seems to be a fight between a, uh, mascots competing for eateries. Uh, so, so take us there. Take us right there in the book. Okay, well, you know how you see all these sign spinners, and uh, I kind of delved in. I was talking to some of them uh, once, and they were talking about how they get paid so much, and they get paid more if they can do more moves and everything. And I I, I learned more and more about it, so I I just started it down uh, on US-1 in South Florida, where... uh, there's there are rival sign spinners and one uh one of them ends up uh, uh getting ganged up on and, and, and beaten with his own sign and everything and uh the, I figured why not <laughs> and what it's about to happen if i don't if i don't write it it eventually will happen anyway so <laughs> right. and and so what came of that uh, well, um, it, it actually carries over to the next book where, uh, but I, we want to talk about this one, obviously, but the next book, uh, uh, my characters become those sign spinners. Yeah. And, um, they, in that, in that one, they have uh, panda outfits because they're standing by the road with their signs for, for a Chinese buffet. Oh, great. So tell us, so you're, you're, this is like, as we said, the 19th, uh, uh, surge storm, um, uh, uh, novel. Tell us who he is, and and tell us a little bit about uh, the the uh, action, the plot in this book. Well, he's actually my alter ego, except I have impulse control. Um, he, um, it's hard to explain. So I thought. I tried to sit down and think of how can I shortly describe him, and then basically it's he he takes offense when he is when newspapers and other media call him a serial killer, and, and correctly so he states that uh, you know uh, I'm actually a sequential killer uh, because like, serial killers 
they, uh, you know, they're compulsive and they'll never stop until they're caught or they die. And uh, says I never intended to kill another person or ever intended to kill anyone to begin with, but uh, uh, I just keep crossing paths with these jerks and I, I try to be polite and teach them manners, but they they just won't listen to reason. So what are you going to do? So he is the main character. So who who is he in the book? Uh, you in, throughout, I mean, the nineteen novels. Well, he's an anti-hero, and basically he's an old-school type criminal where uh, you know he, he doesn't like this new crop of criminals because he says, you know, we used to live by a code, you know, you leave, you know, old senior citizens alone and children alone and the weak and handicapped, and today, you know, those are the first people, you know, they go after, you know, so, um, so he, if you know, if you see if you see some old uh, if you see some old woman getting mugged in one of the books, uh, you can bet that he's not going to last long. <laughs> not many more chapters, but uh, but other than that, yeah, he's he's very highly intelligent. He's kind of borderline genius, uh, insane, and his insanity isn't just criminal insanity. It carries over to his uh, his you know unbridled enthusiasm for all things Florida. And so he, uh, so he was always traveling around, you know, between crimes with whoever he's traveling with, and you know he he darts around to uh, all these uh, locations of note in Florida. But usually they're not the type of stuff in the Chamber of Commerce brochures. They're stuff that he he seeks out and and, uh, and locates, and he's he's always spouting trivia to whoever will listen or whoever he makes listen. And uh, in this book. Um, Coconut Cowboy. He starts. Uh, he actually starts in Louisiana, which is uh, might be uh, you know a surprise for the readers until Sturge explains that the part of Louisiana he's in is uh, well. First of all, Easy Rider. Uh, he he explains all this. You don't have to have seen Easy Rider for this book, but that's what inspires him for this mm-hmm. this novel. That. Uh, the guys in Easy Rider, their goal was to get to Florida, and that was the end of their rainbow for them. And in the movie, however, they don't make it. They climax in Louisiana, and so he says, "You know, I waited for the DVD to come out and check the bonus material for an alternate ending, but you know, no luck." So he goes over to uh, Louisiana to sort of pick up the baton they dropped and to uh, you know carry on you know their quest into Florida, searching for the American dream, and. Uh, and the thing is, he, some of the history that he finds out is that that part of Louisiana, you know, the, the southeastern uh, part, uh, used to be part of the Florida Panhandle, and at one time was actually a, uh, a separate uh, separate country in the early 1800s. It was a mm-hmm. separate independent nation within the United States. They had a full legislature and a constitution and a president and a flag and everything. Uh, and it was called the Republic of West Florida, which is all true. And so, uh, and to, to this day, um, there's a Republic of West Florida highway in that part of Louisiana. So he replants a flag to, to reclaim the land for Florida, and then he takes off down into Florida proper through the Panhandle, and then down into the peninsula on, on his uh, on his odyssey. And and this odyssey and Florida reclamation is going to take him where? What what is his ultimate goal? Well, his ultimate goal is just the, the journey itself. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's not the destination; it's the ride. Right. And so he wants to go. He explains that you know, in Easy Rider that they uh, that they shun the interstates and they uh, they travel mainly just from small town to small town. Uh, you know, with the exception of New Orleans for Mardi Gras. 
So, you know, basically they're taking, you know, the roads less traveled and they, uh, you know, go through the countryside. And like, for example, one of the stops, he's got to go find, uh, you know, Greenville, Florida, and locate the childhood home of Ray Charles mm. and stuff like that. Right. And, he, and he finds it. And I actually went up to the Panhandle and uh, and I, you know, kind of uh, searched for it myself and found it, you know, with the help of uh, one of the locals. Uh, there's an old guy in a pickup truck who saw me sitting by the side of the road looking at a map and he pulled over and asked me if he could help. And I told him and he gave me perfect directions. So I they put all that in the book, and that's that's that is actually the benefit of taking the trips myself and going to locations. Is sure. you know it adds adds flavor to it and details. So uh, so he starts there, then he continues on, and he goes. There's a music park way way out in the sticks, you know, in the North Florida. Um, it's called the Spirit of the Swanee uh, Music Park near. Uh, near Live Oak, Florida, mm-hmm. and they have, you know, several concerts a year, and it's like, it's all these, it's amazing, it's all these latter-day flower children that come out there in the deep, you know, part of, you know, the Bible Belt and, and you know, Redneck, uh, you know, Florida, and uh, and so he goes and visits that, and then he comes down to Gainesville, and of course, there's all this lore of Tom Petty, Sure. so he's, Tom Petty's one of Florida's favorite sons, so he goes and visits various locales that are, you know, landmarks in the Tom Petty story, uh, which are all, you know, it's all true. And, uh, and on and on he goes. Meanwhile, uh, there's this one particular small town, and this was inspired by real events, that uh, it's just this tiny little parochial you know, little hamlet of a town, and uh, and they, they, they're fairly corrupt, and they have a speed trap, and they... They do all sorts of hijinks, and they're off the radar until uh, the state government of Florida starts investigating them. And, uh, and actually, there was a there was a news story about this, and this is when I decided I had to do this, um, which is uh, they were investigating them, and there are certain records about their financial dealings and how they handled public money or whatever. And they reported that the city officials said that the records got lost in a swamp. It's like the dog eat my homework, you know, version of, you know, Florida small town corruption. I go, oh, this is perfect. So there's this small town sitting without giving the spoiler away in the, in the climax in their future uh, on their travels in their path. There is this uh, fictitious small town that I created with uh, that was inspired by all these news stories about the, uh, you know, various shenanigans that, you know, go on at some of these places. And, uh, so while he's taking the trip, you know, the chapters alternate and you see this, this town and, uh, you know, and some, some, uh, innocent people who move to Florida, move into the town and gets more and more corrupt and things get more and more complicated. And, and then you ultimately start to see, yeah, this is definitely going to, uh, intersect and Serge is going to, uh, attempt to make everything right. And, uh, that's pretty, that's pretty much the, uh, uh, what I can tell you without spoiling anything in the meantime. You know, I gotta say, this is all fascinating stuff from someone like me who grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida, close to where you live in Tampa. Um, I left uh, right around college, and uh, a lot of this stuff I had no idea. I knew about Ray Charles. I did not know about West Florida, the uh, the, the sovereign state there. Um, uh, so it's all <laughs> this is all good stuff. And this is what I, I know uh, that you communicate, you write about in your novel about Florida. You come up with these uh, great 
Florida historical tidbits. But I want to talk to you about uh, just I just want to ask a little bit just to t- about this uh, geologist who he encounters, a uh, Peter Pugliese. Yes, uh, Peter uh, Peter Pugliese. He's a uh, he, he's the guy that moves down from up north, and he's an honest he's an honest, hardworking family man, and he moves down into this town called Wobbly, Florida, mm-hmm. and um, and and that's another aspect. Um, since he's a geologist, um, uh, Florida has been known from time to time for sinkholes. Uh, I, I'll have to stop short there uh, because I'd be giving more away. So your your main character, I mean, you've this is the as we said a couple times, the nineteenth book, and you had said he's the alter ego. He's your alter ego. What what is he? What else does he represent for you? And and has he changed at all over those nineteen books? Yeah, I haven't noticed or planned on an evolution of Surge, but readers have said that they think he's changed, and maybe it's because. Uh, you know, I mean, he's grown a softer side, which that softer side is not, you know, toward the uh, toward the bad guys that he gets rid of. But uh, yeah, I guess he's more protective of the innocent people in Florida who end up falling victim. Sure. And for you, what does he represent for you other than the alter ego? Is he something bigger in Florida? Uh, he's more or less the state of Florida come to life. He's kind of, <laughs> you know, the anthropomorphic incarnation of, of the state. And he is the mouthpiece for uh, for all that is great about the state as well as all the things we need to do uh, you know to protect uh, to protect the land and and, uh, and 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 stop you know people who simply are driven by greed uh, and do things that are you know precarious to uh, you know to basically my home state sure we're going to take a quick break don't go away book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Tim Dorsey, author of Coconut Cowboy, and he's talking about uh, his his main character, Serge Storms, and uh, and how he represents Florida. And uh, I want to go back to your first novel. This is Florida Roadkill, which was published in 1999. Uh, you were then working at the Tampa Tribune, um, uh, though not for long. Uh, tell us about the development of, of that novel as as you were a writer. How did how did it come about? Your your foray into fiction writing. Well, that first novel, I was trying to get something started for almost ten years, and I never could really uh, get it get it uh, to congeal. And um, and I guess part of the problem was, um, uh, you know, I wanted to write you know satire about Florida, and uh, and where everything kind of clicked was I was kind of not utilizing one of my you know strongest you know suits, which was. Uh, my knowledge of, uh, of Florida crime, having been you know a reporter and an editor and covered trials and you know crime scenes and stuff. So once I, I said, well, you yeah, got all this information, and you can use that, you know, to spin a, a you know a crime or a mystery yarn. You know, I mean, overall they're dark comedies, but I needed you know some sort of a plot, you know, mm-hmm. to uh, to run it all through. So once I decided to uh, you know to use all of that material that I had kind of gathered up 
all that kind of institutional knowledge just bouncing around in my head. Um, then the outline came pretty quickly, and then as well as the first draft. I mean, it was almost like the floodgates opened, mainly by virtue of I've been trying and I had all these ideas to put, you know, in the story all the all the years of failed attempts. So once I uh, so once I added that last critical ingredient, um, uh, the, the the book just flowed from there. And what was it? What was that? I know we're getting a little nuts and boltsy here, but but it is pretty fascinating. You have all these facts, um, and and for writers, it, developing the plot and coming up with the characters is is probably one of the toughest things. How did how did this one come to you? Well, the um, well to talk about the characters for a second. Um, sure. What happened was um, one thing I learned in, in writing the first book is uh, in my in my unsuccessful attempts, there was a lot of stopping and starting and, and editing as I went, and and uh, you just don't get like immersed in the book. So finally, uh, I mean, I just said this to myself. I didn't, you know, read it anywhere or whatever. It was like, you know, no editing as you go. Just keep going forward. Don't look back, and just that way, you know, you you can, you know, fall into the world of the, of the book that you're creating. And that was critical. So as I went forward, um, my characters, uh, the, the evolution that did occur was during the first draft where my, uh, like my main character wasn't going to be my main character. He was just going to be this sort of larger than life villain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as I had him, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, those James Bond villains, they're, you know, like Blofeld and Dr. No and Goldfinger, um, you know, they, they are, they're, they're criminally insane, uh, and, and, and actually, you know, quite intelligent as well. So I started developing him along those lines, but then in between as he's traveling around, uh, he began ranting about Florida and, uh, and, and its history and getting in all these facts that I wanted to get into the book. And, um, and as I was using him as the mouthpiece, because I was getting the facts in other ways through the narrator, through other characters. Um, but he was very effective and I really enjoyed, you know, writing his rants and his dialogue and him, you know, promoting Flora's interest. And, um, it was probably about a third of the way through the first draft. Uh, and it was, you know, because I had decided just go forward, don't stop, don't look back that his part kept growing and kept changing in that first draft. And and at a certain point, I said, you know, he's what the book is about. You know, forget you know the other main characters I started out with. And so, when I did the second draft, I, I rewrote everything up to that point. You know, bringing up his character and changing the you know that first book around so that he would be the the propelling force. Oh, wonderful! And and as far as uh, uh, writers who've inspired you, I, I'm I'm going to take a, a leap, say that perhaps Dave Barry and Carl Hyacin to a certain degree, since they you worked them in as characters in that first book. Yes, I had them play cameo roles, uh, <laughs> just just a very small cameos, which was more of a you know tip of the hat. And uh, but they were actually true events because when I was traveling around. After I outlined the book, I actually took the trip along the route that I had mapped out for for that uh, uh, for that first book, and uh, and I actually ended up. And here's another thing: uh, there's one sort of there's multiple climaxes toward the end, but the first one occurs at the seventh game of the World Series in '97 that the Marlins won, and it was the first one that they uh, won, and. Uh, 
And it just so happened that my travels took me so that I would be in Miami the day of the seventh game. And, and that was just pure, you know, serendipity that, uh, that they, you know, one, you know, they won in Cleveland one and, and it stretched out until the seventh game. So mm-hmm. me and my friend went by the game, you know, just before the national anthem looking for a scalper. And we got great, we got great tickets, very cheap. And we went in and, uh, and, that was uh, again taking the trip that developed, and uh, in one of the uh, concession lines, I recognized Dave Barry, and so you know I ran up to him with my ticket, and I go, oh, "Can I get your autograph?" You know, and, and he said, "Sure," and signed it. But uh, so I had uh, I had Serge meet Dave Barry at the World Series, and then also on my route, and this all it was almost serendipity. Um, I Carl Hyacinth was on a book tour, and I was in downtown West Palm Beach. Uh, the night of the 16th of the World Series, just before that. And he had just left the book signing as I wandered into the bookstore, not even knowing that it was going to happen. And so there was a stack of his newest books there that were autographed. So so I bought one. But in the book, uh, you know, since I can take uh, you know, liberty, I had Serge go to his book signing you know, and, and get a book. So that... Uh, so that was my way of uh, of getting those two in, which was right. you know pretty much natural because that's how uh, my research trip flowed. So you're from, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're from South Florida originally. You uh, uh, spent some time up in New Hampshire and then came back to Florida. So you know Florida really well. Yeah, I grew up in Florida. That was one of those weird little things where uh, I, I grew up uh, in, in in the West Palm Beach area. And then out of a fluke, um, for three years, uh, uh, the end of my high school years, uh, we, we moved to New Hampshire. And then, I, and then I ended up going to college and coming back to Florida to get a newspaper job at the Tampa Tribune. Mm, got it. So, you know, but, but you know Florida well. What, and, and we talked about surge storms as, as, uh, uh, as kind of this rep- representation of Florida, for better or worse, or for worse. And uh, there whenever something crazy happens in this country, um, people just start pointing that it must be Florida. It must be Florida, uh, including, including this, uh, this, this, uh, a phenom Florida man or Florida guy, I think it was down, down in South Florida. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What, what, what is it about Florida? I, I mean, we also, we also, you had also mentioned, uh, easy rider as, as a, as a trip, they were destined to Florida. Uh, they didn't make it. And then let's also talk about another cowboy midnight cowboy where they're trying to go to florida this is with uh uh john voight and dustin hoffman of course john uh, uh dustin hoffman character uh doesn't quite make it either but but what is it what is it about florida um i think it's the transient nature of our population and uh and also and carl hyacin put it well um he said that uh basically if you're a criminal uh, you know, it's like if 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 you're law abiding, you got to go where the jobs are in your profession. But if you're a criminal, then you have the choice of, you know, stealing cars in the winter in Detroit or stealing them in the winter in Miami. Well, it's no choice at all. Right. Um, but uh, but it's yeah, it, the transience of of the population, all the people coming, going, moving around. Uh, the neighborhoods are, you know, other neighborhoods are well established. You know, you have generations living in certain towns and areas. And here it's like it's like you know people just don't know each other. And kind of on a somber note, um, uh, I remember when uh, people were asking about uh, like the 9/11 hijackers 
we're all you know staying down in you know these kind of sleazy motels or or or, or otherwise. But some of them were nicer than, than others uh, down in South Florida, mm-hmm. and, um, and and people say, well, how come nobody noticed them? And and of course my reaction, I was just shocked at the question. Like, are, are you kidding? Have you been down here? Uh, you know, they were probably the most unnoticed people there were. I mean, it's, if you just drive down any of you know the, the, these highways and these roads around Florida in the big cities, uh, there's a pretty strange cast of characters out on the street. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was easy for them to you know go under the radar because it's just a very, uh, it's <laughs> it's it's. it's it's endlessly uh, entertaining down here, but you know, with our with our people. <laughs> so, as we said, this is your twenty third novel. Um, at the time your first novel uh, came out, you were at the Tampa Tribune. First, I want to. You said that a lot of your ideas, or these at least for the first book, came from your job as a reporter. Uh, uh, at what point did you decide or know you you could you could quit your day job? Uh, well, I, I didn't know it. I just did it um, because I wanted to make a go of this. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, two weeks before my on-sale date of my very first novel, I gave my two-week notice. Mm. And uh, and a lot of people said, well, weren't you worried? You know, weren't you? I mean, you had a career and everything. I mean, that's – and I'm like, I'd be worried if I didn't take the chance. You know, I mean, you can always, you know, go back. I mean, I, I, I had good relationships and everything, but – you know, how many times do you get a chance like this? My regret would be if I kind of hedged my bets and only put one foot into, you know, the pool, you know, as far as, uh, as far as doing this. Uh, so what I wanted to do is, you know, just quit my job and then write these novels full time, put my total, you know, effort into it. And so, uh, so I left the newspaper and a couple of days later, you know, after, after late one night, after putting the paper to bed, you know, I, I Walked out of there with my cardboard box of my personal effects from my desk, et cetera, and, uh, and then a couple of days later, I'm out on the book tour, you know, going from event to event, and uh, and actually that first that first tour went, went quite well, and uh, and I got off of that and got the second book in, and uh, and then just kept, you know, you know, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, you know, I just basically tour book, and then another tour, then another book, and just kept pushing that rock up the hill. Did you already have a contract for a second book when you uh, quit your job? Yes, it was. That was part of it. It was a two book deal that first one, and so you know I knew I had a second one coming. And then after I turned in the second one, they offered me another two book deal, and so you know real quickly. I mean, you know, within a year of leaving, you know, so now I'm up to four books that I'm you know signed up for, and uh, and then. By the fourth book, the series was pretty much uh, had gained traction, and I was on my way. And uh, did you have did you have an idea after your first or second book that the momentum was going to start picking up, or was it touch and go? Uh, I, I was I was too new to the field to have any idea about any of that. I just was I just had my head down and I was just writing each book as I went. And uh, you know, looking back, I probably should have been a little more worried than I was. But you know, worry didn't come into the picture at that point. I was just uh, I was so busy just uh, you know traveling around uh, doing research for the books and writing them, and then do, and then getting my next tour schedule for my author and hitting the road again. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, it worked out. Uh, I found out I was talking to my agent. He was a little more nervous because he didn't want the guilt on him. You know, if I you know quit my job and you know things didn't work out. Uh, but uh, I told him I said no, no, no. I said this is I'm going for it. And so he says, okay, you know, you know, 
still with God. <laughs> and and since then, I mean, uh, uh, you you were no longer doing reporting, but your ideas still come to you. Uh, uh, how, how do you how do you start formulating ideas? I mean, you're doing what two novels a year now? I'm, I'm, it's one a year. Okay. I, one year I did two because I, I had a Christmas book in there as well. But it's, it's one a year, and uh, you know the ideas are. I try to base it on on really what the rhythms and, and current temperament and events are in Florida. And I used to you know go on the. Uh, you know, go on the internet and look at various newspapers. And I don't really have to do that anymore because I have my Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. Anything strange happens in Florida, all you know, a whole bunch of readers will you know tag them and stick them on my uh, Facebook page. So wow. now, you know, like one of my assignments before I start a new book is I just scroll down through the last year of uh, posts on my Facebook page and and pick out some of the best stuff. And that that's you, you can't ask for it. I got the, I got a whole army of research assistants out there essentially. Wow. Well, what is your writing uh, uh, habit like? Um, basically, I it's more of calendar management. Um, uh, after the tour, you know, I've got kind of a a deadline to get started writing, and on that day, you know, there forward, I sort of like block off my calendar so that nothing will you know interfere with my writing schedule. And if I get appearance requests or other things, I basically push them back toward you know the end of the year uh, after I have a few uh, drafts of the book under my belt, and then I'll go and do a smattering of uh, of those events. Mm-hmm. But uh, but basically, I'll. Uh, yeah, no, there's no substitute for good night's rest. You know, I'll just sleep in, you know, the alarm clock off. And then when I wake up, um, I've got the manuscript on my computer, like where I left off the day before, just all ready to go. So just turn on the coffee pot, you know, sit down, kind of check my email a little bit, and then just go back and, and start writing. And, and the last thing I do at the end of the night, once I'm finished with everything I've needed to write for that day, um, I'll save my I'll save my file, and then I'll look at my outline, and I'll you know write down you know next chapter chapter twenty seven, and then I'll I'll list like a series of bullet items of what I'm going to need to write the next day, mm. and, uh, and and then I'll as I go into my evening and as I'm going to bed, um, I'll just start visualizing and thinking about the next day's writing uh, based on you know that little mini outline that I've transferred to the end of the. Uh, manuscript. So, so then I, I sit down, uh, and uh, I, I've been thinking about it and daydreaming, you know, the scenes. And so, uh, when I when I get up all refreshed the next morning, I'm ready to go at it. You know, I just sit down and then just start hitting it. And tell us about your next book that you had mentioned earlier. Well, <clears throat> the next book has uh, it, it takes into. Uh, uh, it looks at like all these different facets of the Florida lottery mm-hmm. and um and and basically the uh you know the lottery in of itself um I had to go back and rewrite a bunch of it because of the powerball and uh oh, wow. things you know because you know suddenly you know it went over a billion like and I go oh, drafts now it's you know more interesting than this so uh so I went and did some rewrites uh but there are all different things that have happened to the Florida lottery over the years well tim we definitely look forward to that uh novel does it have a title yet uh no it's it's untitled i've got some uh, i got some working titles in my mind but uh so right now in my head i'm calling it untitled <laughs> well we've been talking with tim dorsey you can find his 
current new novel, uh, Coconut Cowboy, in stores right now. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you having me on the show today. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us about this year's Winter Institute, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us what's in store for this year's Winter Institute. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, thank you. So... Winter Institute is, is is this kind of like this unsung big deal. Uh, right, this is right. where the the I think the temperature of books uh, seems to be taken at this. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah. Well, this is the 11th year that they've had it, and it's put on by the American Booksellers Association. Mm-hmm. And it started feeling rather modestly um, 11 years ago, as we said, out on the West Coast when the book con- the book convention BEA was being held in New York regularly, and they wanted to give people who couldn't come to New York, especially on the West Coast, a chance to get involved with ABA educational panels and meet some authors and publishers. So from that, it really sprung into this, you know, must-go-to event um, for booksellers, publishers, and authors alike. And this year, it'll be in Denver, and they're expecting over 500 booksellers and then, um, you know, a lot more authors and publishers to be there. So it's a three-day event. How long is the event, and what what actually happens there? Well, it kicks off Saturday uh, with uh, reception, and they run Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And it's it's really an educational conference uh, in many ways. There's lots of panels about on book selling, how to be a better bookseller. It addresses all sorts of topics and issues, and we can talk about those in a second. But on, in addition to that, there are a lot of authors there. Um, and it's designed to give authors and booksellers a, a better chance to um, get to know each other on more of a one-to-one basis right. instead of BEA, which is the big convention right. where there's a lot more of everything. There's a lot more authors, there's a lot more publishers, there's a lot more media, there's a lot more mm-hmm. stuff going on. So that's really what, what it's designed to do. And they do try to focus on authors who could be particularly well-suited to be hand-sold by booksellers, if you will. I was just going to say, this seems pretty, you know, what you just said is it's a smaller, more one-on-one, a more personal environment. And I mean, really, it's the independent booksellers who are, you know, hand-selling these books uh, and and creating local events uh, for for the author. And um, so it's, it, it is a pretty wonderful thing then. Right. I have, uh, I've only been once myself, um, but we've, have, we've gone pretty much every year. I'm headed this year to Denver if we don't get snowed out from New York here. Right. <laughs> so, so we'll see. But yeah, when I was there, it was great. Um, that was probably six or seven years ago. And the topics were, uh, I won't forget, it was much more green involved. Uh, booksellers were 
more worried about, um, you know, how can you be more environmentally conscious around your store and all that stuff. And this was just probably a year or so before ebooks exploded and, and rocked everything. Right, right. <laughs> and so what are the topics that might be discussed this one? Well, this year, you know, as I think we've talked about here a few times before, you know, independent booksellers are experiencing something of a rebound. Right. And it looks like by all, well, all rights that 2015 was another good year. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're going into this, you know, pretty optimistic, you know, feeling that, um, you know, they've, they've turned the tide on, you know, the, the future of independent book selling, you know, going by the wayside. But there are issues. Um, topping one of which is online book selling. Mm. Uh, I think as we discovered over um, this holiday, past holiday season, Amazon had another <laughs> um, great year mm-hmm. and more book sell- well, more book selling and more book buy- more buying of anything was done online. And while most independents do have some sort of online presence, it's not something that they really focus on too much. So there is a movement among some independent booksellers not only to increase what the independent stores can do, but what the ABA can do as an organization. Because as you probably know, they do have this arm called Indie Commerce. Right, right, exactly. They do, but I don't know. Uh, has it been as efficient as 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 smooth sailing as as uh, other online commerce has been? Uh, many would say it's not been. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> including to be fair, the ABA knows that right. they need to do something. Right. So um, I, I think we'll hear a lot of discussions on that and. In terms of you know what independent stores can do themselves and what maybe the association should do as a group, right. and then there's you know a lot more local type of issues. Um, the minimum wage is a big issue, and you know while many booksellers are left leaning, shall we say, um, and do support in theory. Uh, you know, hikes and minimum wages, it, it, it does put pressure on their stores because, right. you know, it's a pretty low margin business. Right. So, and it's particularly acute in, um, you know, the, the states and the cities where, you, where you've heard these minimum wage things. You know, San Francisco, I'm pretty sure, is around $15 mm-hmm. now. Right. Um, so, and there's other cities like that. So, I'm sure there'll be a lot of exchanges among the booksellers about, you know, what you can do and what you need to do to, to meet that wage. Right. And, uh, well, I mean, also going to to talk about that, I mean, will they be talking a little bit about how else they can bring money or make money, like, is is coffee shops or or, or is that a dead conversation? Or no, no, no. <laughs> cafes are still are still quite popular. Yeah, there is you know there is a lot of talk. It's it's really exchanging you know trade secrets, if you right. will, about what's been working, what's not working. Um, you know how to deal with, for instance, you know uh, another thing is real estate and rents. Right. I mean, I think I would say you know, one in three stores that decide that, you know, they're, they're going to close that, you know, rent is, is the big cause. So, you know, that's another topic that, that that needs to be addressed. But, um, 
Yeah, but it's and it's a good time to take the temperature of you know book selling in general. And as we said, it's they're going in with a lot of momentum, but they certainly know there these issues have to be addressed, and that you know you really have to stay you know with your eye on the ball and what's going on and the latest trends in the business. Mm-hmm. And that's what this you know does point to. It's like. You know, I know we'll be talking about without coloring books. Right, right, uh, right. Well, exactly. Coloring uh, workshops there. Uh, we, and, and I know there's been there's been taught some bookstores are holding uh, mother and daughter events and also some uh, wine events and bringing in uh, other ways, to, you know, coming up with other ways to bring people in. But in general, are events profitable for, for booksellers? Uh, well, that's could be a tough question to really answer definitively. But the, no question that lots of books followers depend on events, right? Um, and use a lot, you know, can host several hundred, lots of times, you know, off-site. If the bookstore is not big, they'll partner with um, a nearby restaurant or some other, you know, facility right. to do that. Right. So you know, events uh, is still very hot. I mean, there's within the industry, there's a lot of. You know, sometimes poo-pooing, you know, author tours. But there's no no doubt that, you know, for really well-run independence, having an author, you know, in the house, you know, is a big draw. So do we know of a lineup of authors who are going to be at the Winter Institute? There are a lot. Uh, almost too many to, to go down. No kidding. Um, yeah. I, uh, I forget the exact number, but it'll be several hundred. Um, wow. And, 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 and almost as many publishers. So it's, it's become quite a stop on, on, on the bookselling calendar, only within 11 years. So it's, I think it's a tribute in some ways to you know, the spirit of the independent publisher. And in all honesty, especially with Borders Gone and all these right. other problems with Barnes & Noble, of how, what the importance that publishers place on, you know, keeping good contact with the independents. Yeah. Who, you know, it, it, there's really no question that they certainly can help break out a book. Yeah. Um, especially in this day and age when, you know, discovery is such an issue. Right. Yeah. Uh, how, how, does it, how does it work with the author and the uh, bookseller? Do, do authors give a presentation or is it more like a speed dating uh, kind of? <laughs> well, they're actually, there's all sorts of elements. What they've really done well is a lot of the keynote speakers, if you will, are authors uh, who right. have particular books, you know, that, uh, that they're talking about. Uh, one of them, for instance, is Martin Lindstrom, who's got a book, Small Data, mm-hmm. and he's going to talk about his book and also then apply it to how, you know, booksellers can think about some of, right. the, some of the things he has in his book. So that's sort of the thing. And then there are, you know, breakfasts and lunches with sort of your typical, you know, Q&As with the authors and, you know, meet and greet type of right. events. Right. So they mix it up, they know, very well. Yeah. And I, I seem to remember, I think it was last year, or not the year before, there always seems to be one book or one or two books that the buzz was just catching on, and it kind of carries over into uh, BEA. Right. Well, we're going to wait and see. We've got, you know, we've, in, in our issue that we profiled here um, for our, uh, Winter Institute, we highlight, I think, about 25 adult books and about 15 adult uh children's books right. so we'll see if we pick any of them that are right I, I think um, the Larson uh, book okay <laughs> um, City on Fire right I right. think that's got some buzz early buzz right. kind of kind of pushed it big last year right so we'll see if anything like that pops sure in 2016 well. 
and let's see if you uh, make it out there. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Yeah, well, thank you, Mark. We'll, we'll see what what's in store for us. Well, Jim, thanks so much. Great, as always, to have you on the show. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week when Rose Fox will be back for an interview with another great author. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 